Well, does everybody have some notes? Uh, lesson four. Well, before we begin lesson four, we should take our quiz. This is a fairly easy one. I got four out of five myself, so <laughs> shouldn't be too hard. Right? You make them up, though, right? Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, I know them. <laughs> so Paul's prayer for the Philippians to have insight has the idea of moral discernment, that is, wisdom. True, we said that moral insight is... Uh, Insight is moral discernment, and that's very similar to what we have in Proverbs, and Proverbs is trying to teach the young man and us about the need for how to discern, how to, and that's wisdom, how to apply our knowledge. Discerning what is best for us and our fellow believers requires knowledge and depth of insight. True, right? That's what Paul says. So we have to have knowledge. And then we have to know how to apply it. This comes through time and experience, study of Scripture, correlating Scripture. We find out what is best for us. There's a lot of decisions we can make, but what is best? Most people in Rome assumed Paul was a prisoner because he had committed a serious crime. No. I was thinking of that verse where Paul says, Throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and the rest, they know that I am a prisoner for Christ. So, you know, I would say that's false in the sense that I was thinking of. Most people seem to know that Paul was not there because he committed some serious crime. He's a murderer. You know, he had uh, rebelled against the the, uh, the empire or something like that. Paul says in Rome in Philippians one that. He is in prison, he's in bonds, in chains for Christ because of his Christianity, because of his religious beliefs and so forth. And that was known throughout the Praetorian Guard, and he says, and others know that too. So um, it was you know, clear to a lot of people that Paul is not your average criminal in that sense. He is there for a different purpose than a lot of people would be. It's possible that in our day, some who preach the gospel do so for selfish motives. Probably obvious, but Paul talks about that in his time, didn't he? That people were preaching Christ not for the right motives. Some do it out of goodwill, but some don't, which is very distressing to Paul, uh, as we see. The difficult circumstances we sometimes have to endure are ultimately designed by God for our salvation. I was keying on that verse where the NIV translates the word soteria as deliverance. You know, Paul says, this has happened to me, but it's going to turn out for my deliverance. And I argued, and there's a debate here, but I argue that it's not physical deliverance Paul is talking about. He's talking about his ultimate salvation. And what he's talking about there is the circumstances he was enduring, the good, the bad, the circumstances we endure, the good, the bad, the problems, the difficulties, the health, the this, the that. They're all designed by God for our ultimate salvation, which is our past, our present, and our future. That is, he's working in our lives to bring about our maturity and sanctification. So these difficulties 
the circumstances that Paul had to endure were designed by God for the benefit of Paul. They don't seem like it when they're happening to you. They seem like awful things. Why would God allow this? That's one of the things that disturbs me most when I hear people say One of the most disturbing things I, I just cringe when I hear, you know, why does God, why did God allow this? It disturbs me when I hear a Christian say that. Really disturbing. Why did God allow this? Why did God permit this? You know? What right do we have to say that? You know? We're sinful beings and creatures. And we're only here breathing by the by the grace of God. And God has saved us and given us eternal destiny. So for us to say, why would God allow this? We should know God has a purpose for whatever is coming into our lives. And we shouldn't really be questioning that. I know it's hard because you get a difficult circumstances and just wonder what is happening now. But we have to reflect on the on the fact that. God is working all these things for our good, for his glory. So we're looking at uh, chapter 1 and what you might call Paul's missionary report in 112 through 26. Paul is explaining to the Philippians what has happened to him, some of the things that's happened to him since he saw them last and now that he has been taken as a prisoner to Rome. And he first talks about his circumstances here, and verses 12 through 14, he talks about the fact that, contrary to what they might have expected, the gospel has gone forward, the unhindered progress of the gospel, that his chains, his imprisonment, uh, has not... Uh, stop the proclamation of the gospel. He says in verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am changed for Christ. And then he says, however, this circumstance I'm in has brought blessings, but also some adversity. You know, I can look at this and I can see some good things and some bad things, humanly speaking. And he says in verse 15, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. So the problem is, you have people, he says, in Rome who are preaching Christ, but their motives are not what they should be. And that's troubling. It would be troubling, you know. But Paul says, I can rejoice because at least the gospel is getting forward, even if people are not always doing it for the right motives. Uh, then I still can rejoice. And we suggested that this may have come about because we, we don't know exactly why, but it's possible that here's Paul, he comes into Rome. This is an established church. This is not Paul's usual procedure. Everywhere Paul has gone before, he has established churches. He has founded the church. Now he's going to a church that's already established. So here's the great apostle comes in. There are already people in the church, leaders in the church. There are people maybe who resent Paul. What's he doing? You can see there could be tensions there and so forth, and they may not be happy with the apostle Paul. They may not agree exactly on every little point, and so that can cause some tension. But Paul says, I'm still rejoicing because um, these circumstances 
these difficulties, this adversity, he says, I know, verse 19, that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And I took that as as spiritual salvation. That's the word soteria. Everywhere else, in, this is a difficult text. You can see the NIV translates as deliverance. Uh, others sometimes translate it as salvation. It is the word that everywhere else in Paul means spiritual salvation. But it can mean physical deliverance, physical salvation. It can be saved from a fire, saved from a flood. It can be physical deliverance. But I still think here it might be more that what he's talking about is these adverse circumstances. See, it's hard to see how those adverse circumstances are going to result in his release from prison. But it is easy to see how these adverse circumstances will contribute to his spiritual growth. There will be difficult testings and problems for Paul that he'll have to work through. And this will ultimately culminate in his spiritual growth, his sanctification, and his ultimate salvation. So then we see uh, Paul's attitude in verses 18b through 26. What's he thinking? How is he taking all this? And he says, uh, I will continue to rejoice. Uh, because it's going to turn out to my deliverance and so forth. I believe it's going to help me in my spiritual salvation. And uh, he says, verse 20, I eagerly expect and I hope and will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. So now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So whether, rather than being ashamed, Paul here is confident that he is going to continue to maintain the kind of courage, the sort of characteristic courage of his ministry in the past. He wants Christ to be exalted regardless of its by life, continuing in ministry, or whether he dies as a martyr here. And that brings us to uh, um, sorry. That brings us to one twenty one through twenty four where we're starting, left off last week. He's still talking about, we're talking about his attitude. And we see here that death is no threat for the Apostle Paul, he says, in 121 through 24. I say in this section, Paul makes clear how his deliverance, that is his salvation, is not in any way threatened by the possibility of death. He says, for, for to me, To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Back in verse 20, the issues of life and death are clearly secondary to Christ being glorified in Paul. Remember, he says, I eagerly expect and I hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. But in the following verses, death and life are examined as possible alternatives as to how each one would benefit Paul and his readers. Paul explains here, starts off with a four, an explanatory four, how he can have such amazing calmness in the face of life or death. It's because for Paul, to live is Christ and to die is great gain. To live describes living in this body here on earth. The most important thing in Paul's life was Jesus Christ and all 
that involved. Paul, like all of us, was in Christ. We have this union with Christ, as he says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So for Paul, uh, Jesus had become the motive for his actions. They'd become the goal of his life and ministry, the source of his strength. But, you know, these are pretty convicting words, aren't they? To live is Christ, to die is gain. used to be popular when I was coming along for people to have a life verse. Is that still popular or not? I don't know if it's still, but when I was... If you were in a youth group, you had to have a life verse or something. What is your life verse? You had to pick something. It's not terrible things. You know, it has some advantages, but it's hard to condense your life down to one verse, you know. What is this one verse? And a lot of people pick this one, don't they? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But that's a tough one, isn't it? How many of us can really say to live is Christ. Can we really say that like the Apostle Paul said? It? You know, that's, we aspire to it, don't we? But boy, that is... I'd hate to take that for a life verse. <laughs> In the sense of, could I ever imagine you know, being that committed to say honestly, everything I do in life is ultimately for Christ. But we should aspire to it. On the other hand, to die is gain, Paul says. Since Paul's dying means he would be with Christ. And so that would be an advantage, ultimately. Verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. If Paul should continue to live as a result of a favorable disposition of his case in Rome, this would provide continuing opportunity for him to labor fruitfully in the cause of Christ. For Paul, this never meant, of course, an easy life. We know about his life. If we read much, we know about his labors in establishing churches, uh, his nurturing them toward maturity, where there was frequent opposition. In this class, we just got through teaching 1 Corinthians, and that's a depressing <laughs> That's a depressing thing for Apostle Paul. I mean, in the sense, problem after problem, difficulty after difficulty, opposition upon opposition. And uh, Paul says, in spite of that opposition, in spite of the physical hardships he had to endure, in spite of the spiritual angu- anguish, he said, this remaining in the body will ultimately prove to be fruitful because he's going to be faithful to the commission God has given him. He looked upon his apostolic ministry as a challenge to be grasped, as fruit to be harvested. This will be fruitful labor for me, he says. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. Paul was so positively committed to the will of God that both life and death held certain attractions. So he's saying if the choice were left to me, I don't know which one I would choose. And he goes on, verse 23, I am torn between the two. 
I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. As Paul thought of his prospects, he himself, he felt himself in the dilemma. Though in this his case, either alternative was a good one. The two possibilities were continued life or sudden death inflicted by Rome. The words, I am torn, suggest the divided nature of his thinking about this matter. Now, we have to remember this is only a hypothetical dilemma you know, for Paul. It's not that he can really choose. Uh, Paul had no real control over the situation. His choice here is simply a matter of yearning. You know, if I had a choice, would I choose to remain or would I choose to go to Christ? But he doesn't have that choice, and neither do any of we have a choice about what God will plan for our lives. From the standpoint of what would be an advantage for him, Paul had the desire to leave his life and be with Christ. Death for him would be a departure from his present state. This would not be a catastrophe for Paul since he would it would cause him to be with Christ. So it's very clear in Scripture that when a Christian dies, they go to be with Christ. With Christ in heaven. With Christ where Christ is at. So there is nothing, uh, as the Seventh-day Adventists talk about soul sleep. The Seventh-day Adventists believe that when a person uh, is sort of in suspended animation until the resurrection, you just die and you don't wake up until the resurrection. Paul talks about sleep, but he's always referring to the body. The body sleeps in the grave. Therefore, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We won't all physically die, but we will all be changed in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. So we're talking about the body. The body is sleeping or resting till the resurrection. There's no idea of a purgatory in Paul's thought. When a Christian dies, they go to be with Christ. The Roman Catholic Church believes that hardly anybody dies and goes to be with Christ. Saints, you know, Mary went, actually she was assumed bodily according to the Roman Catholic Church, but saints go maybe to be with Christ, but most, most people don't. Even the Pope doesn't expect to die and be with Christ. He expects to go to purgatory where there he will spend years. Most Christians will spend many years in purgatory according to the the church and they will have their sins purged. Uh, Christ's death didn't take care of all that, unfortunately. and the Mass doesn't take care of all that. You've got to go to purgatory. Maybe spend millions of years there suffering until you're purged. But uh, that is, of course, unbiblical. Paul explained in his letter to the Corinthians, second letter. Therefore we always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We are confident, I say, we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There's only two possibilities. Either in your body or you with the Lord. There's no such thing as out-of-the-body experiences. Now, if you're in the hospital and you're 
Seriously, you know, you have a coma. You may imagine that you're floating around and you're looking down at your... You may imagine all kinds of crazy things. Your mind may do all kinds of things. But you didn't. <laughs> you didn't do that. And nobody else did. Nobody's gone to heaven and come back. Except the Apostle Paul. He went to paradise, he says. But no, these, we're, we're in the body. And if we die, we're with the Lord. If you're in a coma, you're in a coma. But you're not heaven, you're in, you're in your body until you die. So, uh, there's no question in Paul's mind as to the superiority of facing execution and being with Christ. That's far better, he says, because it would bring him to the goal of his Christian life. He would be able to rest from his labors and experience the joy of eternal fellowship in the presence of the Lord he loved. Verse 24, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Though Paul had the desires to depart and be with Christ, which was far better for him, he was guided by other priorities than his own personal desires. He recognized another standpoint from which his future might be viewed. His remaining alive would offer a certain advantage to his Philippian readers. Now, Paul doesn't state exactly what that advantage might be, but... The most obvious is he'd be able to continue in his ministry. He would hopefully be able to return to Philippi, which we think he did. And he might, you know, perform other services for them. So it'd be better for them if he stayed and he could come back, teach, and exhort them. Well, we also see a a word of reassurance here. in this section, verses 25 through 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. This, in the words, and the, the word this and convinced of this, refers back to what is preceded in verse 24. Paul was convinced of this, that to remain in the body was more necessary for the Philippians. He is now apparently confident that he would in fact remain, not be executed. What was the basis of this confidence? It seems rather strange all of a sudden, in light of what he's just said. He says, I'm confident that I'm going to remain and continue with all. What's the basis for that? Was it the result of a favorable development in his legal proceedings? Did he suddenly get word? Or did Paul receive a special revelation from God, a prophetic revelation? Well, it seems doubtful that there's been a new legal development, since that would mean we'd have to assume some sort of break between verse 25 and what's just gone on. Paul just wrote what he wrote in the previous verses about he didn't know which to choose, he didn't know which what was going to happen to him. So that seems doubtful that uh, there was some sort of break here between the verses. Uh, during which fresh information would come. There's no, no hint in the text of any momentous happening there. So we should probably take, should we should probably not take Paul's I know to mean infallible knowledge. Sometimes the word know, I didn't I won't go into all the explanations of that, but sometimes it doesn't mean infallible knowledge. There's some places in Acts where Paul uses it in that sense. It means I feel confident I know, I'm, I'm rather confident. If Paul seemed, meant he infallibly knew 
through some sort of prophetic inspiration that he would be free from prison, it's doubtful he would have spoken as he did in verses 20 through 24. It is far more likely that the statement represents his personal conviction based on what he seemed, what seemed to be probable in light of all the factors. In other words, uh, the need of the Philippians ap- uh, for his apostolic ministry outweighed his own desire to be with Christ immediately. And he probably felt that the case against him was not that strong. As he just said, I'm here in Rome, I'm under guard, I'm in prison for Christianity. Now at this time, Christianity was not an officially persecuted religion. In a couple of years, Nero is going to start the first systematic persecution of Christians. So up until now, there's nothing technically uh, issued by the Romans that say you can't be a Christian um, at this point. And it looks like, you know, Paul's case was not, the case was really not strong against him. The book of Acts brings this out quite a bit. You remember what happened to the Apostle Paul. He comes back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey. He goes to the temple. There's a riot in the temple caused by some Jewish people there, Jewish men men there, and Paul gets arrested by the Roman soldiers who were in the Fortress Antonio and so forth. And they're trying to figure out what to do with this guy. They don't know what to do. And their first decision is, well, let's, let's examine this guy. And the way you do that is under torture. I mean, Romans, if you want to get the truth, you just, you know, just, you beat them, whip them, you torture them. But remember, Paul says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. <laughs> and they say, oh, we almost, we almost, uh, we almost discourage this guy. He's a Roman citizen. We could be, be in big trouble for that. So they, 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 they so they remember the commander takes him to the Sanhedrin so he can figure out, what is this deal with Paul? What's the problem? Why are the Jews so upset? And obviously the commander doesn't understand what the Jews are speaking in Aramaic. There's another riot. He grabs him and takes him back. He's he's in a pickle. What do I do with this guy? So this commander, Claudius Lysias, sends him off to Caesarea, from Jerusalem to Caesarea, the Roman capital of Judea. And he sends him to the governor, uh, Governor Felix. And he writes this, he says, I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. So he's saying, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do with this guy. I'm sending him off to you, but I don't find anything worth death or imprisonment. There's just some religious dispute among the Jews, so I don't know what to do here. And then, you know, he's held in Caesarea for a couple of years under Governor Felix, and uh, a new governor comes, a Governor Festus comes, and uh, also he's visited by King Agrippa, one of the uh, rulers in, in a nearby territory there, one of Herod's, uh, Herod's grandson. And uh, he says, I, this is Festus speaking to Agrippa, he says, I examined him, I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him wrong. So Paul gets there, you know, he, he, he sees Festus, and the Jews come, and they accuse Paul, and Festus says, hey, do you want to go to Jerusalem and be tried down there? And Paul says, no way. <laughs> I ain't going to Jerusalem, man. I appealed to Caesar. I'm going to Rome. So Festus says, 
you know, you appealed to Caesar. After they left the room, that is, King Agrippa and Hephaestus, after King Agrippa listens to Paul's story, he began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar, you know. This is ironic, isn't it? That if Paul hadn't appealed to Caesar, they might have set him free. And you might say, if you're the Paul, boy, I wish I wouldn't have made that appeal. But at the time, he thought, they may kill me, you know. They may send me back to Jerusalem. But see how God works? God got him to Rome. But it wasn't the way Paul thought he was, you know. When you look at those circumstances, you say, this is a foul up here, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. God was in control of all that. So, um, the the hope of his release, I'm saying, was probably well-founded. He probably thought, and maybe after being there a couple of years in, in prison in Rome, he probably felt... There's really not much here, you know. This thing is going to conclude, and I'll probably get out. Um, but because it was only his personal conviction, he made allowance previously. Hey, I may die, and I may go to be with Christ. I don't know. Now, as we talked about in, one of our, in our first time together, the evidence that we have in the pastoral epistles and church history suggests that, this, that Paul did get out. Remember, I won't go into all the details, but we talked about various verses here in the pastoral epistles that don't line up with the book of Acts that suggest Paul went to Spain, then he came back probably to Colossae, Ephesus, he went to Philippi, he talks about 1 Timothy 1.3, I left, when I went to Macedonia, I left you in Ephesus, Timothy, uh, and so, most probably he had this second missionary journey and then he goes back to Rome, and that's where he is executed under Nero, when Nero starts his official persecution. I say Paul continued, Paul's continued ministry among the Philippians would be aimed at advancing their spiritual growth and deepening their joy in Christ for your progress and joy in the faith. Our Christian experience should not be static, but characterized by growing understanding and application of spiritual truth. And this one, in turn, will increase our joy. We'll be more joyous, a greater inner joy, as we enter more fully into the uh, what we have in Christ, the privileges and the prospects we have in Christ. Verse twenty. So that through uh, so so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. In verse 25, Paul said that the purpose of his remaining with the Philippians was for their progress and joy in the Christian faith. The ultimate purpose is their boasting in Christ. The word translated boasting had the eye of taking pride in or glorying in. It doesn't have the doesn't have that negative sense that we think about somebody's boasting. Boasting doesn't mean to brag or to be conceited, rather it has to do with first of all putting one's full trust or confidence he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. He who has confidence, put that confidence in the Lord. Something or someone, putting one's confidence in something. Second, in glorying in that something or someone. Thus, boasting in Christ is a good thing. It's good to boast or trust or have confidence in Christ. As the Philippians would experience the progress and joy that Paul's labors among them would produce, 
they would have new and greater reasons for overflowing with joy. This reason for legitimate pride, boasting, would be found in Christ Jesus. But its immediate occasion would be through the ministry of Paul, my being with you again. So his ministry among them, Paul says, would enable them to see more clearly the riches of Christ. Who wouldn't want to be taught by the great apostle? You know, that would be a great blessing and a great benefit and would help any of us, certainly. And fortunately, we have his word. So we're very thrilled about that. Well, now we come to a call to sanctification, or sanctification means spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, growth in holiness, holy living. With 127, we have now reached what's considered the central section of Philippians. From 127 through 218, Paul exhorts the Philippians to live holy lives, to conduct themselves as believers should. This is followed by two examples of this kind of conduct in verses 19 through 30, Timothy first and then Epaphroditus. We may divide 127 through 218 into three subsections. One, the duties of Christian citizenship, 127 through 24. Two, a description of Christ's conduct as the model of Christian humility, 2, 5 through 11. And three, a more general concluding exhortation to Christian obedience, 2, 12 through 18. We'll look first of all at the duties of Christian citizenship, 127 through 2, 4. The heading from this section comes from the main verb in verse 27, conduct yourselves as citizens should. Paul is probably appealing to their sense of civic duty. Silva says, you know the pride and responsibility attached to living in a Roman colony. Remember that you have a higher allegiance calling you to faithful conduct. Remember that the, the, the Roman uh, Empire would establish, as it conquered territory out in the provinces, it would designate certain cities as colonies of Rome. And these colonies were given special privileges. Usually they were settled. When Rome conquered the area, they would divide the land up among veterans and they would settle there. And it's a special privilege. It would be exempt from most taxation and so forth. So it was a special privilege to be part of a Roman colony. And Paul is using that metaphor, that image here, when he talks about conduct yourself as a citizen, like a citizen uh, a proud citizen would be of Rome. Well, uh, what are the duties of Christian citizenship? Paul talks about various ones here. And the first one he talks about is what we might call perseverance. Verses 27 and 28. A fundamental virtue essential to living the Christian life is perseverance. A determination to remain steadfast true to the Christian faith in spite of what comes our way in our daily lives. The early Christian writer Chrysostom said, nothing is so incongruous in a Christian and foreign to his character as to seek ease and rest. So the, a fundamental characteristic of a Christian is perseverance. And it's the characteristic that I kind of admire most personally. I've lived long enough to see a lot of Christians, you know, and I see them start out, they're on fire, they're, you know, and they're, you know, I went to Bible college and so forth, and where are they now? You know, and that's a sad thing. We see people come 
to our church, and they're maybe they're, you know, they're great for a while, but then they kind of flake off, you know. And so one of the great things about a Christian, Christian testimony, is perseverance, to stick with it. Because there's going to be a lot of obstacles, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. People will get upset with us, we'll get upset with people, people will say things we don't like, you know, there'll be all kinds of things that will come along that could divert us from the path. But the thing I admire so much about Christians I've known for a long time is perseverance, sticking with it over the long haul. It's a wonderful characteristic. Verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul had assured the Philippians that everything would work out well. Remember back in verse 24 and 26. But there was one thing that concerned him. The Philippians were in danger of overlooking their Christian duty to maintain unity. Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The main verb here is the verb conduct yourselves. Now that's different from Paul's customary term to describe Christian conduct or behavior. We're used to the term walk, the Christian walk. The King James translates it walk. Christian would walk, walk, walk by faith and so forth. And the NIV will say live. It means to live. This is not the normal word that's used many, many times. Paul uses uh, the noun form of this verb in 320. Now here we have the verb. We have the noun in 320 where it's translated citizenship. He says there in 3, our citizenship is in heaven. Here in verse 27, the verb suggests the idea of conducting yourselves as good citizens in a state, in a city-state, or in a Roman colony. And as we know, the Philippians were citizens of a Roman colony. So Paul is appealing to that. These are proud people. They're citizens of Rome. And that has that, that, that uh, is something that people were very proud to be citizens. Nobody was automatically a citizen unless you were born in Italy to Roman citizens. If you were born out in the empire, you weren't a citizen. That's what was so strange about the Apostle Paul, that here is this man born in Tarsus, People born in Tarsus were not automatically citizens. We don't know how Paul became a citizen. He said he was born a citizen, which means his parents were citizens. So somehow his parents got citizenship somewhat. We don't know exactly how. But that was unusual. And here these people are citizens. And Paul says, conduct yourselves. Uh, live as good citizens. Uh, so out of this cultural background... Paul challenges them to live as those uh, who had a higher and a vastly more important citizenship. 320. Your citizenship is in heaven. Your real citizenship. Your most important citizenship. Now, it's true we're dual citizens. We're citizens of this world, but we're also citizens of heaven. And that's the most important one. Now, we're still citizens of this world. We have duties, responsibilities, but we're also citizens of heaven. The Philippians uh, here, Paul is urging them to conduct themselves as citizens of heaven. 
Uh, and that's not a transient affair. That's not a temporary thing. Here we're just temporary citizens. But that's a permanent obligation, citizens of heaven. And it requires the fundamental virtue of perseverance, or some might say tenacity. Tenacity. Develop, let's develop that in our lives. Let's develop perseverance, tenacity. Then we're going to stick with it. As citizens of the spiritual realm, the Philippians should stand firm in the one spirit, the Holy Spirit. True unity can only be produced by the Holy Spirit as he works to transform our lives through God's word. Paul says in Ephesians, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So when we're saved, we are in Christ. That creates a unity. We have the Holy Spirit. We have new natures. Paul says, make every effort to keep that unity. And he's urging them here to strive together. Keep that unity. That's the one issue he sees in Philippi, that there is a slight issue here with maintaining this unity. And true unity can only be achieved if we are all committed to and obedient to Scripture. So we are unified around Scripture, around God's truth. Paul exhorts the Philippians to this kind of unity, whatever happens to himself, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence. Whether Paul would be released and thus enabled to visit them in person or be forced to remain away from them and learn of their progress through the reports of others, his exhortation was the same. They have to conduct themselves in a manner appropriate to the gospel of Christ. The responsibility for the Philippians' spiritual growth rested ultimately with themselves and their appropriation of the riches in Christ. And that's true for us too. The responsibility rests with us. We can listen to Pastor Ken as we did this morning. And we can say, that's good, that's fine. But we've got to appropriate that, you know. Just hearing it, just being a hearer is not going to do it. We've got to put that into our lives. We've got to appropriate that. We've got to put into practice what we're taught. We can't blame others for our spiritual state. That bugs me too. <laughs> when Christians blame others. You know, oh, if it wasn't for this person, if it wasn't for this, I would really be... If it wasn't for this, they're always blaming other people. No, it's us. We're the ones who are responsible for our spiritual condition. This exhortation to unified thought and action has in view the goal of striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel refers to the objective faith, the body of truth, the teachings, the doctrines embodied in the gospel message. The Philippians are to be striving together for it, a metaphor referring to soldiers standing side by side in battle. Paul uses a word here that speaks to that. The Romans were famous. You know, you've seen those scenes where the Roman soldiers are standing side by side. They've got their shields. And it's very hard to penetrate that. They were very effective in defeating other people because of their battle tactics. So this is a positive statement, really a command of the Philippians' need and our need to promote and protect the message of Christ, while at the same time, you know, implying that adversaries must be faced. We're going to face opposition, as a church will face opposition. We'll face people who are opposed to us. 
But we have to do this together. We can only do it together. We can only stand together. We can't stand as individual Christians. So that means through our church, we've got to be united together around the truths of Scripture, around the, the, the doctrinal statement of our church, what our church believes. We've got to be willing to stand for that. We are in the church for a purpose. And that purpose is to strive together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 28, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved in that by God. Paul does not want the Philippians to be intimidated by any, in any respect by their opponents. Not being frightened is the negative side of striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. You strive together and you're not frightened by the opposition that comes. The Greek word translated being frightened continues the military metaphor of verse 27, striving together. It's used of horses who were startled and frightened on the battlefield. So in a cavalry, they might be frightened and then that would divide the cavalry and so forth. So Paul is saying here that the divine nature of our cause and the recognition that Christ is on our side should enable us, to cause us to avoid the unreasoning terror that prevents intelligent effort. We shouldn't be overcome by, you know, just unreasoning terror and fear about what's going to happen. God is in control. But what kind of opposition would possibly intimidate the Philippian believers? Since in verse 30, Paul will indicate that his present situation is, as he says, the same struggle which you saw in me and now hear in me. He says, when I was in Philippi, you saw my struggle against the opposition, and now you hear that I'm in Rome in prison. I'm struggling against the opposition. It's more probable that Philippians, like Paul, were having trouble with local Roman authorities. See, it's a real problem. It becomes a, immediately a, a real problem for Christians in the Roman Empire because they wouldn't acknowledge Caesar, the emperor, as Lord. It's hard for us to understand, but in the Roman Empire, uh, that was just like pledging allegiance to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Um, if you didn't acknowledge him as Lord, you were, you were disloyal. You were a rebel. And that meant usually offering some incense on an altar. And this ultimately causes Christians all kinds of problems in the, first, the second century, the third century. It causes them to be persecuted. They try to tell the Roman authorities, we're, 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 we're good citizens, we obey the laws, but we just can't worship the emperor. Offering this incense is worship. And we just have one Lord. We respect the king, we respect the emperor. So probably it may be that they're facing opposition already. We know uh, this is very, very, very happens quite often. We see it in the life of the Apostle Paul, um, as he himself was in Philippi. Um, and Paul says, "Don't let this opposition intimidate you, even though it's formidable." If, if you have this mindset that Paul had, to live is Christ and to die is gain, Ooh. we're not going to be intimidated by our opponents. If we're confident that God is in control of the future, then we're not at the mercy of some impersonal fate. 
then we, we don't ultimately have anything to fear. I say here, Paul says that the failure of the church to be intimidated by enemies was a sign, an indication of the ultimate failure of the enemies of God. The sign is simply Christians not being frightened, but standing firm together and uh, battling shoulder to shoulder for the faith. So apparently Paul is saying here that if the Philippians are able to stand together in the face of opposition, the resolve of the believers to stand together in, in face of this opposition will often trigger a response in the opponents that that they, they, they can't really, that they're failing, that what they're doing to us is failing. It, it may trigger a response that they're ultimately on the wrong side. Um, so this tenacity, this perseverance of the believers would be an omen, it would be a sign that these attacks are ultimately, and could be ultimately futile, will be ultimately futile, and the church will prevail. And, and on the Philippian side, the ability to stand to persevere is a sign to us of our own salvation. The fact that we can stand, we can live through trials and difficulties is an indication to us. It gives us assurance. Yes, God did something in my life. God is with me and able to uh, stay with me and be with me. Well, let's stop here. Is that where I stopped at your notes? Did I go on? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 30. Let's look at verse 30 again. Um, Suffering. Uh, For it has been granted. So another characteristic of the Christian is perseverance, first perseverance, and then suffering. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Verses 29 and 30 offer a theological explanation for the Philippians' suffering. Verse 29 views their present suffering in terms of their relationship with Christ. Verse 30 in terms of their relationship to Paul. The word for indicates that Paul is giving a reason or explanation for the surprising statement in verse 28, particularly an emphatic clause at the end, and that by God. Salvation by God does not exclude the experience of suffering. In fact, salvation by God includes suffering on behalf of Christ. Paul says it's been been granted to you, to us, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. Silva kind of brings this out, the connection between verse 28 and 29. He says, The conflicts that you are experiencing may appear frightening and thus threaten to discourage you. But you cannot allow that to happen. Perhaps you are tempted to interpret these conflicts as a bad omen, as though God is displeased with you and intends to destroy you. But that is exactly wrong. You must interpret what is happening as evidence of God's design to save you. Why? Because suffering is the way to glory... God's gift of salvation for his children. Thus Paul says that suffering is a gift. It has been granted by God. And the Greek word here means to graciously give. God graciously does this. It's it's difficult to think of suffering as something that God graciously gives us. 
But Paul is, says suffering is not is not uh, is not merely inevitable, but it's a manifestation of God's gracious dealings with us. Um, Paul told uh, the uh, Paul told the uh, 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 I have the I don't I'm sorry I was looking to see if I had that slide up there. Paul told the uh, believers in Galatia in uh, Acts uh, 14.22, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. He tells the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 3.2 and 3, he says, I'm sending Timothy to strengthen and encourage you so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. He says, you know we were destined for them. So he tells the Thessalonians, you know, I'm sending Timothy to strengthen you through these trials that you're going through, and don't be unsettled because we were destined. Um, To the Romans, Paul presents suffering as a part of our sanctification as something that's a condition for our ultimate glorification. He says in Romans 8, 17, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His suffering in order that we may also share in His glory. Now those are hard things, aren't they? But, you know, difficulties, tribulation, works patience, doesn't it? And God sends these troubles and difficulties and sufferings into our lives for a good purpose. It's been granted for us to have these things so that we can be strengthened, we can trust Him, we cannot look upon our, look to ourselves, we can be dependent creatures upon Him. And so He's telling the Philippians, don't be disturbed by what's happening to you. This is all part of God's plan. Verse 30, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul reinforces his words on Christian suffering by calling attention to the correspondence between the Philippians' experience and his own conflicts. The Philippians were experiencing the same sort of struggle probably against the Roman authorities at Philippi that Paul was enduring in Rome. The Philippians had seen some of Paul's sufferings when he had been in Philippi, so they would understand this. You're going through the same struggle that I had back there in Philippi. We're all familiar with that Acts 16, aren't we? How Paul was and Titus were arrested. Remember, they were stripped. They were flogged. They were thrown in the innermost cell reserved for the most serious crimes. They were put in stocks. And even though he was a even though he was a Roman citizen, uh, and some of the Philippians were probably a good many of them were Roman citizens. Uh, he was treated as the lowest class of person, you know, when he was thrown into prison there as a felon. And so the Philippians had now heard reports that Paul is suffering this again. He's in prison, he's in chains, and so forth. That had come through Epaphroditus, as we'll see in chapter 2, verse 26. And Paul says, you're 
you're going through the same struggle I had and I still have. So there's nothing surprising here. Perseverance is required, and God has ordained that we're going to have to have some suffering in our life. We're never going to make much progress if everything is rosy and good. You know, if a muscle is going to be strengthened, it's got to have opposition. And we're going to have to have some opposition and difficulty if we're going to grow in Christ. And Paul is saying, hey, friends, we're in this together. We're together for the gospel here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together looking at the truth of the gospel, the message from the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church. Give us uh, a desire to have a little understanding of what it means to make our lives for Christ, and we pray that we will do this increasingly every day. Give us the kind of perseverance we need as we endure the trials and difficulties of life. We know these these have been given for a good purpose, so help us to trust you, not to complain, but to depend upon you and thank you for what you're doing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.